This is Apologetic Live with Matt Slick and Andrew Rappaport, part of the Christian Podcast Community. This is Apologetic Live with Matt Slick and Andrew Rappaport. Somewhere I have this. All right, somewhere I have this on. Echo, so I got to find the, where that is and shut that off. All right. Well, welcome to Apologetics Live. We are live. And so we are here to answer your apologetics questions, challenges, whatever it is that you want to ask. Almost nothing is off the table. Matt will talk about almost anything. Yep. UFOs, Jehovah Witnesses, Mormons. Oops, sorry, we can't call them that anymore. Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, uh, Wiccan, uh, pretty much anything Matt knows, well, he'll at least try to answer. So uh, someone in the chat says, happy hearth day. I I think they meant heart day, Kat, but uh, I I think she was really wishing your wife a happy birthday. Now she's 25. But, uh, but Matt. Uh, let me let me show you. See, my wife loves me, and this is what I got for Valentine's Day. Nice, healthy. I'm sure you appreciate that. Wait a minute. Now, I'm looking at something. There we go. What'd you get? I'm going to enjoy this cannoli while you oh, that looks good. are talking to our Yeah. All right. Yeah. I know look what I got. Know. My wife's birthday cake. From yesterday, she turned sixty yesterday. No, she turned twenty-five, Matt. Twenty-five. Don't you know better? She looks like she's twenty-five. All right. All right. So, um, what I want to do, I talked to you about this. If you still want to do this, <laughs> I, I want to play a longer clip from your radio show, and uh, that'll give you time to wolf down some cake. Okay. It's 11 minutes long. And then what I'd like to do is talk about it afterwards, because this was a very, shall we say, colorful exchange that you had with this atheist on your your show. <laughs> OK, the one about the Taipei Rebellion. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If you want. I mean, whatever. Other people want to come in and ask questions. But yeah. Yeah. Until yeah. until so, he, 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 I hung up on him again today. He's just. I think oh, he's <laughs> oh, well, maybe if he would, if he could come in here and we could explain to him. Uh, did Did you explain the one thing that? Well, we'll get that, but you'll have to see if we if you explain the one thing that I told you. Um, no, he just no. We talked about something else. You know, it's just like, uh, dude. You know, I think sometimes they just want to hear themselves talk on a radio show or something. I don't know what it is. Well, that's what this one's going to sound like. So. uh Let's let's play this clip, and afterwards, I want to I want to talk to you about because this is I think this will be very educational for folks. So here we go. Let's get right to Dave from Fort Worth, Texas. Hey, Dave, welcome to the show. Hey, Matt. Um, I had a question. Excuse mm-hmm. me, I'm sorry. Sure. Um, I had a question on trying to judge who is a true Christian and who is not. I, I know most of the times it'd be like through people's actions, I guess. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, um, there's two ways by their actions and their pro, and their profession. Um, you know, doctrinally, if someone, uh, like I talked to two Mormon missionaries today, you know, they're not true Christians because they teach God came on their planet and 
you know, they teach a false gospel of works and things like that. So you can say, hey, you're not a true Christian. And that's not a problem. Okay. What do you do with someone who professes those things but doesn't really seem to act like it? Well, then you have a disparity between confession and practice. And then it takes a little bit more finesse to say, well, maybe you're not a Christian. I don't know. but you know. So it just kind of depends on the situation, the person, the discussion, things like that. Okay, I, I understand. Um, I study history a lot. Yeah. And I find that there's something that I, I find that I don't, I've never met a Christian that knows this. Um, the largest civil war in the history of humankind mm-hmm. was, was done in China. Okay. And up to 20 to 30 million people died in this war in okay. 1850 to 1864. What was it called? And it was, it was called the Taiping Rebellion, T A I P I N G. Okay. And it was caused it was caused by Christians. Christians okay. started the war. The guy thought he was Jesus' brother. Okay. And Wait, so a false Christian you mean? False well, well Christian. that's what I'm saying. How do how do we know that he was a false Christian? Well, he claims to be Jesus' brother. That's you know, that's one good clue that he's he's you know, doesn't have all his paws in the litter box. Yeah, but how do you know he wasn't Jesus' brother? Because there's and, and no such also, thing. Because there's no such thing as reincarnation. Okay. And also, um, I, I find it fascinating that Christians don't know that this is, this may have been the largest war in the history of mankind. Okay. And it was caused by Christians. And I no, hold on a sec. Hold on a sec. Hold on a sec. Hold on a sec. Hold on a second. You say it was caused by Christians. Now, let me ask you: Are you a Christian? No, I'm not. Okay, so you don't know what a true Christian really is, and when you bring up the idea that it's caused by a guy who said he's the brother of Jesus, let me tell you right away, and, and I gave you an answer, and you just dismissed it. You said reincarnation is not a biblical concept, but the Bible rejects such a thing. And this guy was saying he's the brother of Jesus, well, he's whacked. And then for you to say, well, he's a Christian, as you are an un-Christian, as a non-Christian, don't you see there's a major problem here in your assessment? Did you know about this war? No, I didn't. Do you understand what I'm telling you? I, this is the second okay, time. Well, I tell you something, you dismiss I, it, and I go to something else. No, I'm, not, I'm not dismissing it. I'm not dismissing it. Well, don't I you know what a true Christian no... is? What are what are you? Are, well, are you an atheist or what? Yes, yeah, I'm an atheist. Okay, so you don't know what a true Christian. Do you have any idea? What a true Christian is? I used to be. A, I used to be. I used to be a Christian. No, you didn't. Okay, now you're telling me what I used to be. I, yes, I, used to I be am, a Christian. because the Bible says in First John two nineteen, they went out from us because they never were of us. If they had been of us, they would have remained. So if you left, you were never a Christian, a true Christian. You may have been one in your mind and mental and gone to church, and who knows what you believe. I haven't even cross-examined you about, about your history. But I've talked to a lot of people. Oh, I used to be a Christian. Well, what do you believe about Jesus? Oh, he's a good guy. They weren't really Christians. So you don't know what true Christianity is, and you violate Scripture in the sense that, uh, you know, you, you left. Well, it's not a violation of Scripture. It's a well, declaration I, of Scripture. You left you <clears throat> according to the Word of God. Aside from that, um, do it's you dismissal find it free. all, I'm, I'm sorry, do you find it at all odd that, you and every Christian I've ever met have no idea that the largest, probably the largest war 
ever in the history of mankind was caused by so-called so-called Christians who believe no, they were. I, I don't find that to be unusual. I don't find that to be unusual at all. No. Who killed more people in uh, World War II? Was it uh, Stalin, or was it um, Hitler? Uh, it, it was Hitler. Stalin. So you see. Um, wait, wait, no. Hitler did, and do you know what was written on every journal buckle? Okay. See, I'm surprised you don't know these kind of things because in Stalinist Russia, they killed uh, 40 to 60 million people and uh, Nazi Germany about 20 million. But don't you find it strange that um, an atheist like you wouldn't understand this kind of facts about human death? What's the percentage by any chance? Do you know the percentage of the wars that have been caused by religious people, religious wars? I, I, I don't know the actual percentage. Seven percent. And uh, okay. I had the documentation wait, on my wait. website. I'm surprised that wait, you wait, wouldn't wait, know wait about that. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. You're telling me that the Japanese during World War II, <laughs> they were fighting for their god, were they not? Hirohito uh, was a god. Uh, you could say that, uh, but in the name of religion, you can go to um, – you probably think that religion causes war more than, than secularism, correct? Um, the Nazis had on the belt bubble, God's men's wounds, which means God is with us. That's yes. what, that was on every German belt buckle. Oh, that means they were all doing it in the name of God, right? It doesn't mean that maybe there was a no. political movement to use God in order to justify Hitler's occultic stuff, which he was involved in the occult, and he said Christianity needs to be wiped out. Are you aware of that? No, he was a Roman. No, you're Catholic. not aware of that. You're so ignorant of so many things. Joseph no, Stalin, no, the estimate is 42 million people killed by him. He was an atheist. Mao Zedong, another atheist, 37 million. Hitler was definitely not a Christian. Chiang Kai-shek, 10 million. Vladimir Lenin, 4 million. What about the 30 million that were killed by Christians in the the Taiping War? Okay, I tell you what, I tell you what, I tell you what. Why don't you do something? Would you let me finish, please? You really need to do some homework. Because you haven't done oh. it. You don't know what it is to be a true Christian. And it, and if you have somebody who such as a brother of Jesus, or, and he's the guy who claimed to be a Christian, that's not true Christianity. You don't even know what true Wait, Christianity is. And here you're telling me 30 million people were killed by Christians. Yeah, Christians are out there murdering and pillaging people when the Bible says don't do that, when this Christian Christians say don't do that. What is wrong with you? Why do you hate Wait a minute. Christianity so much? Wait a minute. Wait, you telling me that I'm ignorant? You didn't yes, know you about are. The largest, probably, wait, wait. You didn't know about the largest civil war. No, I did not. Calling, no, I did not. And you did me. not know who wait, killed more people. Me? You did not know who you killed more wait. people, Stalin or Hitler. Stalin's purge before the war. You don't know. For a lot. Yes, I All do. Right. Stalin. We'll just move along. So, oh boy, here we go. Dave from Fort Worth. Dave, round two, huh? Round two. I'm sorry. I didn't know. I got to disconnect. No, I, I hung up on you um, because you were being obstreperous. All right. I'm sorry. Um, I'm, I'm sorry. You, I'm sorry. You, you, you see, I don't know what you're. You did, I don't know what your point. You didn't know what I was talking about. I didn't know what I was talking about. You didn't know what I was talking about. Yes, I did you know what no I'm talking what, about. You told me. So you that's did how know I about know. 
you, you didn't know about the Taiping Rebellion and up so, to 30 million to 50 million. Are you million familiar? People. You knew it. Hey, Wait, did on. you know about that? No, I didn't. I already went over with that. Did you know about the Three Kingdoms War in China? No, I, no, no. Okay, no. because 38 million to, uh, you know, well, 38 million people estimated killed. Hey, okay. I, I just don't know if you knew, that's all. Is it significant no, I, if I know that or not? Um, if, if it has to do with religion, it should be something that's oh, important. So you're telling me that I should know everything about every religious war all over the planet throughout that's history? Uh, no, I think that you should know about the most deadliest Christian war in the it's history of It's not a Christian war. It's not a Christian war. There aren't any such Even things they, as Christian wars. There aren't Christ any such things. Christians? Show me in the New Testament where it tells the Christians to go to war and kill people for different beliefs, whatever. Show me in the New Testament, and then you could say something's a Christian war. Show it to me. Um, okay. Didn't Jesus say, I, I didn't come to bring peace, I came to bring a sword? Did you hear that ripping? Did you hear <laughs> ripping? <laughs> that ripping sound, like a verse being ripped out of context? I don't know if you heard that or not. Oh, okay. Maybe I got out of context. Yeah, you did. Because um, what he's talking about there is his superiority and loyalty to him over mom and dad and family. And that's what he's talking about in the context. He came to bring a sword because people are going to fight over him. Not that he wants them to kill each other, but he's the sovereign king and the sovereign Lord. There's nothing in the scripture that says, to tells Christians in the name of Christ to go out and kill anybody. Nothing. When you had the Crusades, it was the Catholic Church, the apostate Catholic Church doing all kinds of things. When you have various people who are wackos and they use the name of, of Christ and they go out and do something, they're not true behaving as true Christians. Don't you understand that? Okay. I mean, there's no reason to like insult me again. There's no reason to do that hominem. That hominem means that I attack the individual in order to <laughs> invalidate the argument. I'm not doing that. Well, you, you called me ignorant when I. Ignorance is not an insult. Ignorance just means you don't know something. You called me ignorant about a subject that you didn't know nothing about. About, a about the Taiping Rebellion. Okay. You, knew, you knew nothing about right. it, but you All called right. me ignorant. We're going to move along. <laughs> All right. I got to admit, Matt, my two favorite lines in there is, <laughs> no, we didn't get disconnected. I hung up on you. <laughs> that and the, did you hear that ripping sound? <laughs> I'm glad you like that. <laughs> that was great. All right. So, so let's, I wanted to bring it up because there's a couple of things that are helpful for folks in this one for folks that were listening. Did you hear how patient Matt was? I mean, here's a guy who clearly has an ax to grind. Clearly Matt three times called him out on the fact that he's just dismissing whatever Matt says, ignoring it. Um, Matt, you did something that I do want to talk about. He brought up a war. You didn't, know anything about beforehand i'm gonna we could discuss that in a bit but <clears throat> you asked him a question of which who which person was more involved with more death hitler or stalin why do you ask that just to see what he knew because he's his issue was about who you know how many people died and stuff like that you should know about that well he's bringing up wars oh what about this war he doesn't know about that you know it's like you're just picking and choosing some issue and um Listen to that. T just tells me I need to be uh, less patient with people on the radio. Get rid of them and move on to the next caller. Yeah, well, and that's what we have the show. We could go a little bit longer with with yeah. folks to come in. But 
Here's the thing that was interesting. I didn't pick up until I heard it again. He comes in and states he studies history. And then you asked him a historical question. <clears throat> a basic one, yeah. And he then you gave, a whole, you gave a whole bunch of statistics <laughs> that he didn't know. Yeah. You have hung up on him like nine times now. He's keeping count. Hung up on him again today. He's, you know, he's I'm just gonna not going to have him on. It's just ridiculous because he's just, you know, he's wasting time. That's all it is. Yeah. And I, one of the things I do appreciate and folks pick up on what Matt did, this guy used a fallacious argument, an appeal to authority, said, I used to be a Christian. Matt, what did you do when he did that? Well, I just told him he wasn't. It went, you know, biblical on him, but uh, yeah, you heard it. And and the reason, because, you know, you, you quoted scripture, it says he isn't. So I, I just want to let folks know, when we look at the Taiping Rebellion, it was a civil war. It was a political war. But here was the interesting thing that I told you, Matt. I did something when this came up and I listened. I went and asked my bride if she was familiar with a civil war in China. Why would you ask your wife if she's familiar with the civil war in China? Because she's Chinese and she grew up in Hong Kong. And she was like, nope, we never studied that. <laughs> So for the largest uh, war, and it's supposedly a Christian war, but even the Chinese don't study it all that much. <laughs> so why should the uh, Americans know it? <laughs> yeah, it's just uh, sometimes these guys, you know, they don't understand logic. They don't understand inference. And uh, they just, you know, it just waste of time. And, and it's frustrating for me to hear. I, don't, I never like to listen to myself uh, on recording radio. But it's, that's what it's telling me is, uh, yeah, I need to get rid of people sooner focus well actually it was quite entertaining i think the folks that were were listening here <laughs> were, were appreciating just li looking at some of the chat uh people were were appreciating the um <laughs> hope they were logic yeah it wasn't very good yeah but how many people we got in here now we got uh josh so, smith yeah he's don, a hero. don yeah, he has don joseph cat b Atomic, just uh, same old. Hey, Josh, how you doing, buddy? Well, we could add him in so that he can answer that question. You can unmute yourself, Josh. Hey, Matt, how's it going? It's going, man. Hanging in there. Oh. Glad to see you in here. Oh, it's good to see you. It's good to see you. I didn't get to uh, chime in last week, but I was just about to to make a joke on the side chat about the the BHI guy from last week. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, he was so I know and, you and Andrew loved that. That was so funny. Oh man, <laughs> I was cracking up because some of that stuff. You white devil. Yeah. I just I love being called a white devil. I don't know why. But I get a kick out of it. You're, you, you, after you dropped out, he he kept I think it was after you dropped out, he kept going to me. He's like, white devil, white devil, white devil, white devil. <laughs> like if you keep saying it doesn't make it true. <laughs> Oh, but what happens if you get a tan? <laughs> Tando. <laughs> yeah, well, hey, it's all about but what the happens if you're a light skin. I, I knew a guy in college, and uh, I thought he might have have half Mexican, half white kind of combo, and whatever. We hung around. We were friends. Went over to his uh, dorm one day, and he's got a picture, and he's all these black people, and he's the only guy in there. I'm like, what the heck is this, man? What, what's up? You know? And he goes, oh, it's my family. I go, oh. 
you're adopted. He goes, no, it's my family. I said, no, you're adopted. He goes, he goes, yeah, well, no, it's, I was born this way. I said, you're a, you're a black guy. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, yeah. And I said, I, I wish he was, I said to him, well, you should have told me I can't be your friend now. And, uh, <laughs> so he called me some stupid name and whatever, <laughs> but, uh, I got a kick out of it, but it was like, I still remember that being shocked. He goes, yeah, it just happens sometimes, you know? All right. So anyway, what a BHI guy do, you know? <laughs> That, that was your uh your face laughing at that matt's face <laughs> like oh my goodness like his his eyes get so open. good yeah that was so funny i was like la- i was laughing at what the bhi guy said and then matt laughed and i laughed at matt's face <laughs> laughing <laughs> i know it's like are you serious i mean it's you know it's one ha- one thing it's pretty pretty sad i mean these guys are serious and this is what's really terrifying is because I mean, he actually said, you know, that what white people or whatever are going to be dirt under his, his shoe serving them. I mean, like, what? There are people who actually believe this stuff. Yeah. 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 I thought it might've been uh vocab Malone. I think, well, it wasn't, to give, it wasn't <laughs> to give John credit. That was, that was his idea. I, th- I knew, I knew it had to be, a troll, though. I thought it had to be a troll. He was even laughing himself. I yeah, he was every now and then. He was, oh, he was? He'd be giggling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He'd, he'd be giggling. You, you'd hear it. Oh, okay. he I didn't hear that. Yeah, yeah, but but the thing oh. is that he was giggling, but what he would mute himself, and so because sometimes he forgot to mute himself, and he was talking to others, and he's like, hey, hey, hey yeah, I'm talking to these, these guys. Don't know anything about the Bible, and the irony is he didn't. He he told me I was, I was. uh using words of Satan or whatever. And I told you, I was like, dude, I just quoted scripture. That, I mean, yeah. <laughs> but she doesn't know the Bible. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty bad. Pretty embarrassing. Yeah. So Josh, do you have any questions? Actually, I, I did. Um, and I can start just with one. So I, I don't so, know if you have a question on marriage, maybe cause <laughs> you know, Hey, I'll be doing a, uh, marriage thing in in a couple of weeks at a church first friday oh well josh knows a lot about it matt because you know yeah it's been it's been challenging but it's it's good i feel like i feel like it's already been forever it's only been 16 days so (laughs) 16 days (laughs) wait 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 you've been married 16 days no, that was a that was from look, right after he got married. Two weeks after he got married, he came on the show and said that, and I grabbed that. <laughs> Wait a minute. Okay, you told that was a recording that you just played. I just played it here. Okay, here. Yeah, it's, been, it's been challenging, but it's it's yeah. good. I feel like I feel like it's already been forever. It's only been sixteen days, so. <laughs> All right. Yeah. I don't know. You, okay. you know what? When you guys do the recording things, I don't know if you're telling me the truth. I don't know what's going on. So <laughs> you know, you got to play a recording. And say I'm going to play a recording because it, it screws me up. You, I don't you know thought what you I was guys talking? Doing. Yeah, <laughs> I thought you were talking. <laughs> yeah, I'm Easy playing. Ways. I'm playing uh, cribbage while I'm, I'm, you know, waiting for something to happen. <laughs> well, that's why you shouldn't do that. Okay, so go ahead, Josh. Ask your question. <laughs> <laughs> well, so. So I multiple ones. One of the first one that's in my mind, just to give some background. So I'm uh, I have a friend who just he just graduated um, uh, with his master of arts, master of theology. I I, I can't remember which one it is. Okay, uh, from Westminster. Okay. So your your alma mater. 
Which one? Uh, uh, California. Yeah. Okay. And so he he was talking about we were talking today, and he we're just going through Meredith Klein's. Um, mm-hmm. It was Treaty of the Great King. Okay. Uh, and so in Klein talks about um, uh, the ancient Near Eastern like pattern of Deuteronomy and and um, the Pentateuch. And, yeah, and I vassal treaty pattern. Right. Yep. Right. And so I was I was just gonna ask you about because you've I was I was like, oh, you know, Matt's talked about this for years, you know, and now I'm reading about it um in Klein. What I wanted to ask you is um your I guess your favorite resources, where to get started, like reading more about that. I know Klein's really heavy heavy reading more uh, about what? Uh, about about the ancient Near Eastern um Read Klein. Uh, Klein. Okay. Is that who you, I was wondering if that's who you, if that's who you had read too. Cause I was like, man, this. No, you know, he was in the class teaching. Oh, you. T- okay. Okay. He was. Okay. He was there and we had his books and, and we went and, and uh, he was the one who inadvertently uh, convinced me of infant baptism. And the reason is because uh, he he was not talking about it. What this guy did, it was brilliant. Uh, he had his Hebrew Bible. I didn't know it was his Hebrew text. And he's going back and forth like this in the pages. And he would just read something in English. No, I go, okay, he's got a Bible. And then one day, I, I, he kept doing that. It was the same book, obviously. And I realized one day, is he's reading the Hebrew. Mm. and translating that fast and i mean like this you know where it was i'm like okay you know that it just blew me away he he was impressive and um what he did was he's one of the guys who helped develop uh the understanding of the what's called the suzerain vassal treaty pattern of the ancient near east third millennium bc stuff and what that means is that uh the pattern is basically uh there's a big king and a little king or suzerain and a vassal and the big king and the little king make a treaty. And uh, usually the big king initiates and says, this is who I am. This is what I've done. Here are the stipulations of what we're to do. You know, you feed me, I'll feed you. You'll come to my aid, I'll come to your aid, you know, those kind of things. And if you don't do this, or if I don't do that, here are the consequences, things like that. Mm. And uh, so he was the one who, who basically, by reading the original languages, uh, you know, Ugaritic or whatever it was, uh, and did all this research, found these things out. And a lot of people started quoting him and, and blah, blah, blah. Okay. So he, you know, he would just, he was teaching and he would teach uh, each day and he would go through the Old Testament and he just did covenant analysis because that's what God does. He works covenantally. He just, that's how he does. And he, was expanding on the nature and the covenant of stuff. Let me tell you, in all the covenant theology that I've learned over the years, uh, is I'm not, I'm not trying to be humble, not trying to be funny, is a smattering next to nothing compared to what this guy understood. He would go into the Hebrew and show word patterns and then explain. He'd go in his Bible over to here and say, oh, look, it's the same thing. This is what's going on. You understand something about the covenant. And he started expanding how covenant was and how God works covenantally. And he talked about the eternal covenant and stuff like that. And the covenant of the family and how families are included in the covenant. And that it's just that is normal. And to not believe that was to actually be a non-Jew. You ha- in order to be Jewish, you had to believe in and understand the covenant relationship that God had with his people and on a national level 
and also in a family relationship. And so he says, and blah, blah, blah. He goes, and this is why, uh, you know, the covenant signs, and he talked about covenant signs for a day or two or three. And then he'd get into the covenant sign of circumcision and covenant like that. And he says, the infants. And I'm sitting going, oh, that's why we <laughs> baptize. That's why we baptize infants, because the, the same covenant stuff is in New Testament, too. The same patterns, the same things and the same stuff. I just went, oh, crap. In fact, I remember where he was standing when I went, when I converted. And he wasn't even talking about it. You know, and I went, oh, man, remember that. So he he's absolutely brilliant. I've got some of his work back here. I need to unearth it and see if I can read some of it. Brilliant guy. But anyway, that's, I was reminiscing a little bit. Thanks for letting me do All that. Right. <laughs> No, that was, and that was helpful to us too. Um, I think like, why is it, why is it important? I was, as we were talking about it, cause he's kind of um, like my friends kind of uh, like tutoring me in, in doctrine of God. Like we just started that um, just today. Uh, and he started with covenant and said, this is why it's important. This is, I wanted to ask you like, like your take on, on, why that is a critical thing to know. Like I have my ideas, but well, yeah, well covenant and, um, and can't be saved without it. Right. Seriously. Right. Right. No, that's true. Why? I would say, yeah, but I'm, I, well, and I wanted to add to on, under the question as well to make it one, but like, why specifically do we have to know? Um, why is it important to know the, um, structure of a uh, of a suzerain vassal um treaty pattern like that, that, means, that well what it means so, is we're understanding things in a cultural context mm-hmm. and cultural context really determines a lot uh, or can help shed light on a lot of things so the remember the suzerain vassal treaty pattern all right is the big king would say to the little king this is who i am this is what i've done and here are the stipulations, rewards, and punishments, right? So listen to this. This is the Ten Commandments. Uh, and the Lord God spoke to all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have known your gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol for any likeness of what is in heaven above or in earth beneath or in the water or, or under the earth. So he says, this is, I'm the, this is who he is, and this is what he did. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. So this is the suzerain vassal treaty pattern. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I'm the Lord. I'm a jealous God, a stipulation, and a punishment, mm-hmm. visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children of the third and fourth generation, but showing kindness to thousands of those who love me. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, another stipulation, for the Lord will not leave him punished who takes his name in vain. It goes on. And so this kind of thing is there, and you go, oh, wow. Now, furthermore, what really was insightful I'd always seen Ten Commandments uh, depicted as six and four or four and six or five and five. But he said, no, he said it's ten and ten. And um, let's see if I can find this. It's been a long time. Uh, and there's a verse that says this. Okay. Okay, so the, the, if in a suzerain and a, and a vassal, they had a covenant, they would either be written out on clay or whatever it was, or papyrus, and both parties would send their signature to it, and each party got a copy of the entire covenant. And so one copy went back to one person, another copy went back to another person, so that they knew exactly what their agreement was over, was about. So 
Moses had the, the two tablets, which signifies 10 and 10, because he, God's making a covenant, and the Ten Commandments, in a sense, are a covenant with Israel. There's more, they represent more, but he's making a covenant with Israel. So Israel needs to have a copy, and God needs to have a copy. All right? Now, First Chronicles 28.2, then the king, the king David rose to his feet and said, listen to me, my brethren and my people. I had intended to build a permanent home for the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and for the footstool of our God. So I made preparations to build it. Now, notice what it says there. I had intended to build a permanent home for the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and a footstool for our God. Now, mm -hmm. the Ark of the Covenant contained what? Yeah. The book of the law. Well, the book of the law was set beside the ark. And the then Ten the Commandments. Ten Commandments were put inside, yeah. Yeah. Both yeah. were put inside. Who who owned, so to speak, well, let me put it that way. Uh, the Jews had possession of the Ark of the Covenant. That's their copy. And the ark, the other copy is right there, which is the footstool of God in the Holy of Holies under his presence. It's a double symbol of the covenant aspect of God's working with Israel, where both possess the covenant document. One, the footstool of God, which is the, we call that ark, and which his presence is there in the throne and the Shekinah presence in the Holy of Holies. And yet it's in the possession of Israel. Each has this. This is what I learned from Meredith Klein. Mm. This is not my deduction. This is, I, I was just in class. I'm just sitting there going, wow. 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 I would love to take a class right now again, because now that I know so much more, mm. I'd be like, oh, wow. Oh, wow. I mean, seriously. Mm. And just to round out, just to round out this set of questions, um, reading Klein and then talking with um, my buddy about this, he I, I, it just came to mind. I was thinking it's so funny when um, uh, like I'll be. Um, reading a, a textbook for for classes like for seminary and they're talking about um uh the author of old testament of the in the textbook is talking about uh the similarities and i'm like wow well people on the street will say you know that you know the bible pulls from here and it's copying off this and it's copying off that you know and it's you think about well is there any room for historical context don't you think that you know what I'm saying? Like yeah, but that, what that's consistent with it. Right. Right. Pull, in, in, right. Of course, they're going to pull out of other resources. What's wrong with that? Right. The and the Bible is full yeah, of yeah. other re of references to other books that they drew information from. So, yeah. yeah. And it, it's just it's amazing how a little bit of learning just on that can really clarify those issues. And you're like, wow, the, what that person was saying on the street or. You know, anywhere mm -hmm. you're you're talking to them, you know that's not a problem as they're presenting it. That's right. That that goes the other way. <laughs> yeah, they'll say, "See, they borrow from other sources." I'd say, "Yeah," because is it true that some of those other sources might actually have accurate information because they were in the area too? And so maybe Moses, who studied under Egypt, had all kinds of education and training and all kinds of stuff. Hmm. Now, where did he get the information of Genesis? That's not Egyptian theology. He got that from a different place. And it's either from direct revelation or some other source. And even if it was from another source, you've got to understand something. That Let's just say, hypothetically, 
Now, I'm not saying this is the case, but let's just say Moses had access to special writings that were ancient, even compared to him at that time, that depicted Genesis 1 and 2. And let's just say that he had it in his hands, these ancient documents, clay tablet, whatever. Who knows? Because he was trained in Egyptian stuff, and it goes back a long time. Well, could the Spirit of God illumine his mind to say this? is the true part record it and he would know by revelation this is true and he would just record it why not i mean uh enoch is quoted uh in, by jude it doesn't mean enoch's inspired but the quote and information extracted is accurate so a lot of times people get this idea that the bible is this monolithic piece of literature that developed on its own independent of culture independent of history independent of everything that's not the case and right. it can absolutely draw on other references and that's not a problem but the, the we don't know how much it has done because we do know that there's some to some degree it has but that's that's okay i have on the on carm i have a uh, uh, an article dealing with other books quoted in the bible uh, the books of the wars of jasher for example i don't know i remember that one well we don't have that now well, where is it? We don't know, but it's quoted. And so they got reference and information. Okay, well, there you go. So what's the big deal? It doesn't mean it's not inspired. Just as um, Paul the Apostle quoted Epimenides, Menander, and, and uh, Erastus in Acts, you know, or I think it was actually only in Acts. But anyway, he quoted pagan philosophers. Well, what's wrong with quoting pa pagans? Doesn't mean they're inspired. So the Holy Spirit can work through people to bring this stuff about. Now, I think that was by revelation that Moses had this information strictly revelation he was up on the mount there with some time with with the lord i think god gave a lot of information um but nevertheless i think he came down with more information he had the blueprint so to speak for the um tabernacle in the wilderness and where to get this information you know so hmm. it was revel revelatory but anyway I'm, I'm rambling a little bit thank you helpful at all yeah. Yeah. Next up, yeah. Next up is John has a question. By the way, Matt, uh, Josh is being, he, he's not being uh, mentored. He's being converted to Presbyterianism <laughs> over there. Is that happening, Josh? Are you, are you moving that way? <laughs> no. I'm, I'm, right now, I'm reevaluating the, the covenant. Well, you, what um, you're going to find, you're, you're going to find about the covenant stuff is that it becomes very enlightening, hmm. and it's very interesting. And even if you don't go full on, you know, full presby, you know, um, that's all right. But you will have been enlightened, and then you can even teach me some stuff because I've forgotten so much, you know. And you can say, "Hey, we learned this now. Oh, yeah, that's cool," you know. So yeah, it, it'll be a real blessing for you. All right, John, you are up next from the, I don't know what kind of cave that is, if that's a atomic cave there with your, your bed spring behind you, but go for yeah, it. Yeah, it's, it's a mess back here. Talk, um, talk into my mic so we can hear you. Hello, can you hear me? Yeah, we hear you. Okay. So my question is this. Lately, I've been coming across some people who have been really offended about the notion of dispensationalism. Could you tell me, what exactly? Because from what I've understood, dispensationalism is basically saying that the church replaced Israel. 
Is, is that pretty much that sums it up or is it just other things? And why is it so offensive to some people? Well, I could answer it, but we have a full blown this dispy dude here. You could answer yeah. it. Well, see, Matt, <laughs> actually, Matt, do you believe that there is this age and an age to come? Yeah, because it's in the Bible directly stated. Okay, sensational. Thank you. Um, <laughs> you guys hear that ripping sound? Yeah. Anybody hear that ripping sound? I just I don't know if you guys heard that because that was one of the louder ones I've ever heard. <laughs> and it kept no, echoing so, in the ignorance chamber. It would just. Actually, this would be this is good for there, there's someone in the, in the uh, chat was saying that you and I agree on everything um, or I agree with you on everything. Uh, no, we no. don't. No. Mm -hmm. So this would be the thing. I think I think that the issue why so many people have an issue with uh, dispensationalism is because a lot of people don't understand what it is. And they think of dispensationalism as premillennial, pre-tribulational, so an end times view. That's a byproduct of dispensationalism. It's not what dispensationalism is. So dispensationalism is the idea that God works with his people differently through his covenants at different times. So God would give new revelation. That would be by his covenant. Each covenant would have new revelation. It would have new um, things to be obedient to and there'd be new warnings of disobedience with each one and so god ends up giving new revelation new requirements and works differently with with each group as he gives more revelation and that's really what it, it is and what where it comes into play in and this plays off well with what matt was just saying with josh where we're going to see it is really in the hermeneutics the science of interpretation so i would end up taking things a lot more literal and less looking at um, either a figurative way or looking at, as Matt was just talking with the covenants. I'm not going to look at things at a covenant view where Matt would. And that's going to be really where the difference is. On the grand scheme of things, is it a big deal? No. I think a lot of people make it a big deal. And, and may Matt, you could tell me if you think that this is what you've seen, that a lot of people attack dispensationalism either out of ignorance or just because it becomes something that if there's a lot of agreement, they can get everyone to agree with them and going after someone else. I don't know what you well, think. Different, different motives for disagreeing with it. But just so you just you know, the reason I'm covenantal is because I take the Bible as literally as possible, <laughs> not figuratively. But uh, there's a, you know, a lot of people have different reasons for it and uh, for their attacks or their beliefs. And okay. You know, I just go covenantal because that's how God operates. I came across a guy who who's really offended by it, and and he said something to the effect of, and I, I wish I can quote he's him. Offended? Exactly. Wait a minute, he's offended by dispensationalism? Yeah, yeah, he was. Or like, he just thinks saying? it's wrong. No, he literally was saying that it it affects somehow the 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 the, the application of of. The, the efficacious work of Christ on, on the cross. I don't know how, I can't remember how he worded it, but oh. he, he said something that, that was just really out there uh, saying that dispensationalism kind of uh, makes uh, Christ's uh, work on the cross um, not effective, I guess. Or oh, you hear I, that one, that'd be interesting. Wow. I know, I know. I, just, I can't remember what he said, but it was really intense. I mean, the guy was like going, and he even booted me out of the, this one group. 
because this one, uh, what was it? I think it was a Facebook group or something I joined. And yeah. I, I posted something from, I think it was from Paul Washer or something like that. And he's like, Paul Washer is a dispensationalist. I don't allow that, <laughs> you know? So Yeah, he's yeah, he's just on the baby out of the bathwater at that point. They're going, you know, too far, but whatever. Yeah, yeah. But was I corrected with my summary uh, as far as, is it the the church replacing Israel? That's or one of the main dispensational views. Okay, yeah. okay. But there's different degrees to which they say he, he replaces. Some say complete and total replacement without any hope for Israel. They won't be restored in any way and come back into their work. And some dis- dispies say we've replaced them, but God's not done with them and uh, stuff. That's that's more of a covenantal uh, position. So let me correct that. <laughs> oh. that's, what made, that's what we made covenantal people think that dispensationalism. Dispensationalism believes that God works through his people differently in different dispensations with different covenants. So it's not that there's no replacement. It's it's not a replacement. And, and so it is that God is working with a new group of people called the church versus a group of people he used to work with called Israel. But don't we read though in, 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 you know, revelations that there's going to be a time where the, the Jewish people will, will basically wake up and, and turn. I think both Matt and I believe that God will do something with Israel in the future. Yep. In other words, he's not done with the Jewish people yet. Correct. He's not done with them. Yeah. Some of us are even becoming Christians. (laughs) So, I mean, but does that affect the 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 theology of dispensationalism because of that or no or, or i mean you guys i no. guess you look at it you know each of you look at it as covenantally or versus uh uh the other word <laughs> dispensational yeah yeah dispensational. well this a lot of dispensationalists are pretty covenantal in a lot of things they just like some just like the nomenclature of dispensationalism because history is divided into seven periods that's kind of an arbitrary thing in my opinion but um, you know, there's just there is strength and weaknesses in it. Um, I'm not convinced of it. And Meredith Klein had a lot to do with it because sitting in his classes and just listening to Covenant, it was it was just enlightening. It was just oh my goodness, I had no idea the Covenant theological perspective was that pervasive in the Old Testament and that deep. So yeah, and, but and, let me state this, John, for right. you. And this would be something both Matt and I would feel very strongly about, and that is Matt and I obviously disagree on it, but we're still thinking each other's a brother in Christ. Yeah. And this is the thing. You get people that are like, oh, no, I I don't care if they're a dispensational or a covenant. If either side is saying the other one's not saved because of this. It's a problem. Then that's a problem. Yeah. 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 Yeah, it's non-essentials. Basically, what what Matt has always taught in the past was yeah it's it's a non-essential matter if you come across and there is he's just eating away <laughs> so um but but andrew i was going to ask you was like wouldn't you 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 see the point though of god working through covenantally i mean he's i mean you see it all throughout the old testament as far as you know him and abraham uh, you know, making that covenant, you know, with the, uh, the with the carcass, you know, with the with the sacrifice. I mean, you see, you see, all throughout the Old Testament, you see him covenantally making 
promises uh, to his people, why why all of a sudden would he just end it after the after Christ uh, came into this world? Did, when would a dispensational say that he's done with covenants? Oh, okay. I mean, oh, I thought that. So, and, and this is this is a fallacy. If you're talking to a guy that's okay. saying that line, and, and this on Matt and I have talked about every single. When you look at the dispensationalism and dispensations, every dispensation is based on a covenant. So the covenant okay. is what ushers in the new dispensation. And it's the covenant that changes God's relationship with his people. So he, he deals with Adam and Eve different than he did with, with Abraham, different than he did with the nation of Israel, with Moses, different than he did with David. Each one of those would have a covenant relationship. Mm-hmm. And so we're, we talk about this economy. That's what dispensational means. So it's this economy, this way God works with folks. And he does it through the covenant. So, yeah, it, it, it's a misnomer when people say that dispensationalism doesn't believe in covenants because. Gotcha. Okay. That was probably my confusion. Then was yeah. I was under, I was assuming that, you know, your position was you don't believe in the covenants, but uh, that was my bad. Okay. Okay. That makes it much more clear. So good. There you go. Hey, Matt, just for fun, um, you know, until some folks come in with questions, we got uh, the Catholic traditionalist is trying to ask whether I agree with you that there could be square circles. And I keep telling him this is a category error. Uh, It's kind of funny because he's telling me that, uh, I guess, you know, things with God don't have to be logical, which makes sense. If he's Catholic, he doesn't believe that. Yeah. So, um, I, I, I'm going to ask this of you, uh, assuming what I think your answer is going to be, but I gave him an answer that he just doesn't like. Why is it that that is an illogical question? It's impossible for one thing that is defined and actually something that by its very existence and definition in nature cannot be something else. So, for example, a square necessarily, by definition, has four equal uh, angles, four at 90 degrees, and also has four equidistant uh, or equal length sides. That's what a square is. A circle is, by definition, not that. And so a circle has a radius and the radius is constant from the central point all the way out. There are no inclusions of 90-degree angles. In fact, there are no angles. There are no sides. So by definition, one excludes the other as being what it itself is. Therefore, a square cannot be a circle, and a circle cannot be a square. And for him to say a circle can be a square is just simply um, nothing more than flat out absurdity. And the fact that uh, I tried to correct him and he then retains the absurdity uh, demonstrates he is the noetic effect of sin on the mind. I mean, the noetic effect, that, that's sin on the mind, uh, plus uh, his lack of proper understanding of basic logic and the fact that he is so rudimentally committed to Catholicism, and uh, this is part of a premise that he needs to build an argument. He's so committed that he is adopting absurdity and impossibility. 
and um, he can't grasp it. And because of that, uh, you can't trust him to have a rational conversation. And that's not an insult. It just means you can't trust and have a rational conversation because he's being completely irrational and asserting something that's logically impossible. How do you have a rational conversation with someone who offers the absurd as a basis for building a case for something? You know, it's it's, it's yeah, in my exchange with him, he's saying like, well, God doesn't, you know, God's, God's different than us. So I guess God doesn't have to, you know, God's not law, doesn't have to be logical. And now he's a, trying to appeal to quantum mechanics to say, well, in quantum mechanics, can there be a round circle? Oh, man, <laughs> seriously, the guy is, is stunningly ignorant and studying, stunningly, uh, you know, uh, uh, incapable of having a, a logical uh, discussion in this area. And he doesn't even understand that uh, logic itself is a reflection or an emanation out of the very mind of God. And since we can define logically, let me back up, the laws of logic and the laws of inference and various things are reflections of the mind of God. And this is why, because we are in the image of God, Genesis 1, 26, 27, 28, we can then think things like God and recognize things because we're made in his image and the logos, which was the word that became flesh from which we get the word logic, the logos became flesh and dwelt among us. And since we know from logic that it's impossible for a square to be a a circle, it's just impossible. Then we know that since this is a logical impossibility, and we also know as Christians that the logic itself, true logic, and the laws of logic or emanations or reflection of the, of the mind of God, we know that God cannot violate his own mind and that he cannot make a round square. If this guy wants to assert that that's the case, then he is basically asserting a different God and without knowing it. He's also asserting that God can then thereby be self-refuting and contradictory. And by doing that, you can't trust him. So he's really undermining uh, his foundation for knowledge, for rationality, and the true nature and essence of God, and, and then appealing to ignorance as a defense, which is a further demonstration of his complete logical incompetence in this area. And so I'm going to ask you which logical fallacy this is, because he tried to argue that um, well, he asked me the question in, in quantum mechanics, can there can there be a round square? Yes or no? I said no. He said all quantum physicists disagree with you. Do you know what logical fallacy that is? That's appeal to authority. And uh, also um, argument in populum. The majority says it. So it makes it true. So, OK, give us a list of quantum mechanics that say there could be round squares. That's exactly what I asked him. I said, can you name one? <laughs> and what do you do? Well, he's been silent so far. <laughs> yeah. All quant? He said all? Really? Yeah, he says all quantum physicists disagree with you. So he should be able to name one then, right? That yeah, says, I, mean, I, 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 want the, I want to see the quote that says that quantum physics shows that we can have a round square. Yeah. But, you know, okay, so let me ask you this, Matt, because this is something you, we saw this in that clip that we played in the beginning where people, they get a conclusion, right? They, they don't want to give up their conclusion, but they want to try to show you that your belief system is somehow wrong. And they, they don't want to talk about their belief system, 
right? I mean, you talked about it in that in the intro uh, clip that we played with that guy who you called him out for dismissing three times mm-hmm. something you said. We see this all the time. Why is it you think so many people do this where they, they dismiss what you say and they just want to attack what you believe? Because they have an agenda and the agenda is not uh, coincident with truth. Uh, the agenda is a personal, um, what's the word? Personal, not a vendetta, but a personal thing, not an idol, but a certain personal something that they want to accomplish and push. It's just a personal agenda, I guess. And uh, that's what it is. And we see this all the time. With people who are unregenerate, we'll find the effect of sin upon the mind. And we find it within Christians as well. But when you find people who refuse to see facts, then uh, you you have a problem. This is, you know, interesting because because, um, uh, someone has been saying to me, in private, and I want to go public with me and talk about it even here right now, if they would, that uh, I've been saying on the radio that uh, divorce is permissible, along with remarriage is permissible, if the um, uh, one person commits adultery and or abandons the other person. So adultery and abandonment are justifications for divorce, and then you're free and you can remarry. And they say, no, you can't remarry, and it's not going to work. You're Matt, you're teaching them to be uh, committed adultery. So I said, okay. So someone gave me an argument, talked about different words, and moikete, uh, which is adultery, and pornea, which is immorality, sexual immorality, not porno, but pornea, but at any rate. And uh, so what I decided to do was consider this person's argument. And I thought, maybe this person is right. Maybe I've misunderstood the text because this person started deciding the Greek and made a couple of points. I thought, okay, I'm going to look into it. So what I found myself doing automatically was saying he can't be right. And I remember thinking, dismiss that because it's certainly possible he could be right. I don't want to have a loyalty or an agenda to anything that I already hold. I need to be open to being corrected. So what I did was I went in and I studied. and. Lo and behold, I discovered that um, uh, that he was wrong and that my original position was correct. And I'm writing an article that I'll release. And I went through the Greek and I did an analysis of this and that and found out and read some commentaries by some Greek experts. And blah, blah, blah. You know, I, I really researched it. And it was a good challenge, uh, but I found out that no. And the whole point of this is I tried to remain open to maybe I'm wrong about something. And that's an issue of pride in me. I don't want to be wrong because Matt Slick knows everything. And so I got to make sure that Matt Slick's right. So go to the Bible and find out whatever you can or to make Matt Slick look right because he's got to be right. And I had to dismiss that and say, no, because if it's what the Bible says, I need to subject myself to it. This point, I'm trying when I teach people others, I'm saying, yes, I, I submit myself to that philosophy as well. It's not easy to do, but I don't have any loyalty to any philosophy. I have a loyalty to Jesus Christ. I have a loyalty to the truth of the word of God as revealed in it. And so I'm obligated to do that to the best of my ability. And I'm responsible to represent it truthfully. Now, it's certainly possible I could be wrong in some of my conclusions, but I'm not wrong knowingly, which would then be deception. So, you know, people can believe something that's not 
correct and not be deceiving people because there's no malice or intent of dissent, of deceit, excuse me. So nevertheless, this is the thing I advocate that people do. Drop your pride best you can and go into the word and let it guide you and teach you. Forget your agendas, forget your history, forget your church, forget your this, forget your that, forget me, forget Andy, Andrew. Just go in and study the word. Let it let it speak to you. And that's what I want to want to say. All right. I think uh, we're going to have a little bit more fun in the next segment of the show. Um, before we get to John from last week, he was the uh, the guy who didn't know how to read a dictionary. Um, actually, he's saying that. If you go go check the comments in in the inside chat, not that um, guy again. Yes, this will be fun um, because well, I I, I I have like some questions I had from him le- from last week. We could get to maybe too. All right, so let you know, but but. Before we go to him, you know, we were talking about this Roman Catholic guy, and that could actually put you to sleep. But if you're going to go to sleep, if if before you listen to the Roman Catholic guy and he puts you to sleep, make sure that you, like Matt and I, get a my pillow because it's one of the best pillows. And at least if you have to listen to that Catholic guy, you will sleep soundly with your own my pillow. Very comfortable pillow stays nice and firm all night long. And they are a sponsor of the Matt Slick live radio show. And we promote them here. We also just love their pillows. So if you want to check it out and know why Matt and I sleep so well, you can call 1-800-944- Five three nine six. That's one eight hundred nine four four five three nine six. You let them know you heard it on Apologetics Live, and get yourself a My Pillow. I also want to play an ad for a conference that's coming up next month. So many Christians struggle with suffering, and yet they do it alone because most of us are too ashamed to let others know that we're struggling. We struggle alone because we think that there's something wrong. As Christians, we shouldn't be struggling at all. We should just have the answers, and yet that's not the case. There's many of us who struggle, whether it be within our marriage, whether it be with our children, whether it be with physical ailments. I want to let you know of a conference coming to Freehold, New Jersey, to help with this. It is called the Sanctification Through Suffering Conference. It is going to be held at Chinese American Bible Church in Freehold, New Jersey. You can get all the information and the speakers. The speakers will be Justin Peters, who if you know him, you know he struggles physically. Frank Mullis, Colleen Sharp, and Joe Suazo. And we will have this conference. You can get all the details and register at strivingforeternity.org slash conference dash on dash suffering get all the details and i hope to see you there all right yes that's because a lot of people do struggle uh folks who know matt know that uh, he has struggled you know with asperger's for a long time but even more so now uh folks that have been know that uh he has been struggling more with his wife who's struggling and with that matt i want to i i do i meant to send this to you before we started the show but let me read something and this is an email i'm going to send it to you right now actually because there's part of this i won't read um and i want you to check your email so you can get this but dawn sent this to us she said i listened to you and matt religiously on podcast um, I've gr- learned and grown so grown so much from both of you. Thank you. Um, 
I, when I can, I donate to you both. Parentally, single mom, crazy, uh, Bill's crazy, but God provides on, on parentheses. Um, so she says, anyway, my spiritual gift is encouragement. Uh, listening about the struggles with Matt's wife has gone through the past year breaks my heart. She sounds very lovely, and I would like to do something for her. You're going to have to read the email, Matt, to see what she's going to do, because maybe it'll end up being a surprise for your wife. But <laughs> so where's the email check, sent to? I, I send it to your Matt. At the, 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 you Just check your email. Okay. Um, so she, uh, she says, um, let's see. So she said, uh, thank you so much, Andrew. I appreciate all that you've, you guys have done for the church by equipping us for the battle and love. God bless you. So that was from someone named Dawn who just wants to, to bless you. Your wife has gone through quite a bit of struggling and that's why we're doing this conference, because there's a lot of people that just don't talk in the church about the issue of suffering and physical struggle as if it's not there, as if if we pretend it's not there, maybe it'll go away. You know, Justin Peters, you know that he struggles physically. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, what amazes me, J- Justin travels literally all over the world, like third world countries with cerebral palsy and with crutches to get around in places where they don't really have roads. So I think he knows a thing or two about dealing with physical suffering. And, uh, you know, I'm looking forward to hearing what he's going to present to us. So that's going to be March 15th, 16th. That's next month. You know what Shakespeare said? Beware the Ides of March. (laughs) March 15th. I'm sorry. Go ahead. That was really (laughs) bad. It was just horrible. That was like one of the worst transitions. <laughs> <laughs> that is so true. One of the worst ever. You got that right. Okay. Now that I've totally messed you up. Okay. That was go just, ahead. We're cards of, eyes of March, so go register. <laughs> <laughs> what did I got to do? Matt, just <laughs> shut up. Okay. Yes, yeah, so I put I put the link in uh, the the chat there, and I'll put it in the show notes for the podcast. Um. So, all right, I uh, I brought John back in uh, for some more fun, Matt. Um, now, I think last time to bring people up to speed, he was arguing that uh, morality is subjective, uh, and you gave a definition for objectivity from a dictionary, and he kept saying that things are defined by a accepted standard. So my my question for for you, Matt, as we wait for him to unmute himself, is what would be the standard? The the because he was saying we have to have an accepted standard, um, one that uh, you know the populace would agree to. Wouldn't that be what's called a dictionary? Yeah, yeah. And he was giving you one that he made up uh, that purposely put it in a way where he would try. He could say he won the argument. Yeah, he can try what he wants, whatever. You know, he can so, try. It's like, oh, man. It, it's, I don't know. I think he's trying to save face. I, I don't know. Have him get on. We'll, we'll see. We'll talk. And yeah, well, He unmuted himself, so go ahead, John. Well, first of all, I want to ask, are you going to uh, mute Matt if he tries to talk over me or interrupt me? <sighs> yeah, I. so 
what I typically do when Matt's doing that is I mention that to him privately because I have a private chat with him. Um, so you don't see that. I don't have a private chat with you, so I do it here. Okay. It's just, it happened a lot the last time. So I'm just, uh, it happened both ways. wasn't sure if that was happening. So. so first of all, I'd like to clarify a few things from uh, the last time that I clearly got, uh, a misunderstanding from or deliberately uh, misrepresenting. First of all, I do not believe that uh, you understand correctly what I mean about the consensus being the definition that is shared between two people when you're talking about words. Now, yes, the dictionary it tends to be considered an authoritative source, and I can give you plenty of, def- of dictionaries which give that definition, which provide the definition I was using, and probably in a way that makes it a little bit more understandable than uh, the Merriam-Webster's did. Uh, I'll agree that the Merriam-Webster's uh, first definition that was given there was not exactly clear. Okay, but uh, hold on. If you look because at the Cambridge Dictionary, if you look on, at the, uh, the Oxford English Dictionary. Hold on. John, hold on a second. Let's be fair. Matt asked you for the standard. He asked you whether Webster's Dictionary would be okay. You said yes. Now you want to try to criticize that. Actually, yeah, your, standard. your memory's a little bit wrong. I actually volunteered the Webster's just because it was the first one that came to my mind. I didn't even see it before I offered it. Had I looked at the dictionary definition there, I probably would have uh, gone to a different def- different definition, which I provided to Matt in the chat yesterday, incidentally. Okay, so give us the link in the inside chat so we can look up this definition that you want to use from the dictionary. So, um, actually, I don't have the links handy, but I do have the definitions. If you want to look at the Cambridge English Dictionary, or um, you'll find there it talks about uh, not influenced by personal beliefs or feelings, being fair or real. If you want to just take a look at a thesaurus, you'll find that a synonym for objective is unbiased. If you want to look at the, the Google.com, just look up um, on Google.com, their dictionary service. Um, you'll see that uh, it says of a person or their judgment not influenced by personal feelings or opinions in considering and in representing facts, uh, synonym being impartial, unbiased. Um, dictionary.com itself provides uh, several uh, dic- um, definitions. Uh, number five being not influenced by personal feelings, interpretations, or prejudice based on facts, unbiased. Uh, if you go to a witch, Wikipedia and look up the term objectivity as it relates to philosophical con- concepts, it states that it's a philosophical concept of being true independently from individual subjectivity caused by perception, emotions, or imagination. A proposition is considered to have objective truth when its truth conditions are met without bias caused by a sentient subject. Now, I would imagine you would agree that God is a sentient subject. Let me, let me ask you a question before Matt gets in. The contrast of this is the question between objectivity and subjectivity, correct? That is correct. And if you go to uh, any philosophical uh, page, you'll find we, it contrasts subjectivity and objectivity. We, do this. We, we just mute you, John, when you try to talk over me. Um, when I ask you a question, you give an answer, I'm going to ask another question. So this, if you want to do that, I'll just mute you. So now the question I'm going to ask you, since it's the difference between those two, objectivity and subjectivity, the question that was at issue last time that Matt was trying to get to is, what's the difference between objective 
and subjective. What makes the difference there? Yes. And when Matt was asking the question, the way that Matt interprets subjectivity is that it is, it is something which is free from one's own personal bias rather than free from any bias. As that philosophy definition I provided indicates, it's from the bias of any sentient individual. Matt, was that your definition? Because I don't remember that being what you said. I don't remember what I said. So the, the issue that Matt brought up was the issue of being outside of oneself versus from within oneself. In other words, subjective is from within yourself, something you subjectively, something that you come to versus something that's outside of yourself. That was the distinction. Okay. And, and here's the problem with that, uh, that definition. It's not complete. The reason why it's not complete is because anything I say to you, you would have to consider to be objective because it comes from outside of you. So you ignore the context to go to what you want. But no, I'm not, not ignoring the context at all. The, the context is, a, is the contrast between those two words. You keep jumping to something that's outside of those, the context. Of I know you'd like to, to be that way, but that's not the case in philosophy. If you go to philosophy, you study philosophy, we're talking, you learn that. We're talking about case. words first. We're talking about words that have meanings. You're giving different meanings. So, but, so, you know, it, I mean, go ahead with your question to Matt. Uh, it looks like Matt's trying to ask a question, so go ahead. What's your question? Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, I thought you were trying to ask a question. You were asking for a timeout. I, I just did. What's your question? Okay, so basically what I wanted to do is actually provide a, a more succinct reason why I believe objective moral morality is not objective than what I provided last time. And I would like to do that without you interrupting me as I'm trying to give the definition so I can actually, or the, the, the argument, so I can actually get it out. And then if you'd like to go ahead and uh, criticize that, that'd be fine. Well, as long as you're not going to take a long time because um, it's not your show. So it's so sure, just be, be concise. I understand. I'll do my best. So morality is imperative in that it is a, a set of prescriptions and and proscriptions, basically uh, saying that you can do this or you can't do that, thou shalt do this, thou shalt not do that, rather than being descriptive. Because it is, it is something where it's a commandment, it's actually coming from somebody, or it's coming from oneself. If it's, if it's coming from somebody else, if it's coming from outside you, that's what is generally considered to be morality. If it's coming from within oneself, that's what's generally considered to be ethics. We see this all the time in, in organizations like uh, the ethics of medicine, the ethics of business and so on, the ethics of law, versus the, the morality which is imposed externally, say, by a society upon its members, by a church upon its congregants, by the head of a family upon the, uh, the members of the family, for example. So morality is dictated, and because it is dictated, it actually comes from a person. Uh, even the commandments of God that the Christians believe in, they, they come from God. They're dictated by God. Now, they may have a standard of some sort that is the basis 
for the morality, for the moral system. But that standard is not, it's not selected objectively. It, it is decided upon by the person who is dictating the morality or who is accepting the morality. So basically it's the nature of morality which indicates that morality is subjective. It has nothing to do with whether or not there is some kind of objective basis that one might use, but one, that person that is using that as the basis is basically the, making that, uh, distinct, that decision. That's what makes morality subjective. So go ahead. So what's the purpose of this? I just wanted to point out because so many people who are moral realists argue that there's an objective morality that, uh, that everybody is beholden to, that is everyone has to obey. And I believe that's an error that uh, many people are making. Now, this doesn't mean that if there is a God and God is going to hold his creation, all of mankind, to that standard, that that wouldn't be something that we shouldn't be concerned about. Now, I don't personally believe in the, the, the God of the Bible, but one can certainly argue that if such a being exists and such a being has ultimate power, certainly over all of mankind, then obeying the moral standards that such a God sets forth would probably be a good idea and in people's best interest to do so. So basically, you just kind of wasted our time. If you think so, I'm just well, you didn't say anything. People, I'm just tired of people uh, claiming that the objective morality exists when it doesn't. Oh, it doesn't. Okay, so objective morality. What you mean is that any moral, it by comes of an it by uh, any sentient being, is automatically subjective. That is correct. Okay. And so what you're saying then, uh, that the objective moral uh, is not something that's universal to everybody. Because if it was objective to everybody, it would not be universal, right? I mean, it would, it would be if it was objective to everybody. You're saying there is no universal absolute moral truth, right? Okay, so that's another is that, is that right? That, uh, this is something I think that there was also a little bit of confusion on when we were talking last time. Now, when you mean universal... It seems like sometimes you mean universally applicable, and at other times it seems you mean everyone is is believing it. And the problem with that is that those are two different usages, and they often get ambiguously mixed together. Now, a person, such as God, for example, could say everyone must always do this. That's subjective coming from God, but it still applies to everyone at all times. So it's universal, it's absolute, but it's not objective. So, uh, you're saying God's morals are subjective to himself? Yes, and to anybody who, who adheres to them. They're also subjective, but... Hold on, hold on. It doesn't I make asked... them, them something they shouldn't do necessarily. You complain that you want me to interrupt you. I ask a simple question and you pontificate for long periods of time. I, I miss asking simple questions. 
So you're saying God's morals are subjective to himself. That's all I asked. Is that what you're saying? Yes, I am saying that they are subjective to himself. Okay. And uh, according to the scriptures, is God's nature absolute and unchanging? It is my understanding that the scriptures claim that. However, according to the scriptures, and yes, the answer is yes. Do you affirm that? What I would say is that it it seems to state that. However, there are other scriptures which seem to contraindicate that. Um, you're wrong. You don't know what you're talking about in that respect. Uh, the Bible clearly says that God is unchanging in his nature and his essence. You can go to Malachi, Malachi 3.6. You can go to Hebrews 9.22. Um, his nature and essence does not change. It, that's just what it is. He's from everlasting, everlasting. He is God. Psalm 90, verse 2. If you want to make the mistake of going into how God uh, operates through history at different times and then equate that with his nature, then that would be a category mistake. So the Bible clearly teaches that God's nature is absolute. Sorry about that. That God's nature is absolute and unchanging. Now, that's the biblical position. That's a Christian perspective. Now, so God's morals come from his absolute unchanging nature, right? So I understand that's your position, and that's the position of most Christians. Okay. We're walk, we're, you want to complain about the Christian God. We're talking about the Christian God. You're not talking about a bunch of Christians. You're talking to me. So I'm trying to get you to be specific. You want to be clear? I'm asking you to be clear. You want to talk about the Christian God? Let's talk about the Christian God. I happen to be very well qualified to tell you about the qualities, attributes, etc. of the Christian God. I've been doing this for 39 years. I'm qualified. Of course, I would not say that everything I say is automatically true because of it. But nevertheless, the nature of God is immutable, unchanging. It's also eternal. So he's unchanging and he's eternal. Now, Jesus says in Matthew 12, 34, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. God speaks out of his abundance of his heart. He said, don't lie, don't steal. This is out of his nature, out of his essence. So therefore, is it not consistent within that worldview? Because you're complaining about the Christian worldview. So is it not cons consistent in the Christian worldview to say that the morals of God are reflections of his absolute unchanging nature? I would say... It is mostly consistent, but I would disagree with you as far as the total consistency. And and I know that I would disagree with you, that you would have explanations for that, as you alluded to. I think that's something we're just going to disagree on, though. But that was a, a different topic ago. I need you to focus. So I, I'm sorry. I, I'm being distracted by my wife calling. Um, perhaps we can call, we can uh, deal with this a different time. But uh, I no. no, 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 no. Don't do this no, again. Don't tell me no. Is, I'm not lying to you. It's rather disingenuous to say that I am, but she, she is calling me. I, I, you dominated the time. I'm asking you questions. Okay, you're being evasive. And I'll give them as quick as I can, but if you're going to ask a leading question that I can't give a straight yes or no answer to, I'm not going to answer yes or no. Then I have to teach you how to give a simple answer. Again, if you're asking me a leading question that I can't give a simple yes or no answer to, I'm not going to answer it that Yes, you can. Is two plus two four? According to the standard of mathematics, which commonly we agree to, yes. Wow. Is there any case? Is there any case where two plus two is not equal to four? If we disagree on the standards of mathematics, or we have a change in the base, uh, maybe a base six, or, or something else, or a base two. I have a, 
I have a suggestion. Why don't you go be with your wife? I will, and uh, I'll try to get back another time when uh, she's not calling me. Yeah. You uh, you have a happy uh, think Valentine's Day, uh, you and Andrew both. Uh, perhaps we can discuss this another time. All right. <laughs> let me That's... let me. He's he's gone. You know, whatever. Yeah. Just um, the problem is a, should be pretty obvious. Um, he wants to take all the time that there is. This happened last week, too. It's kind of interesting, is that when I started pinning him on the transcendental issues, he had to go. It was very gracious, okay. Now, when I start to do the same thing, now he's got to go again. And, okay, now I'm starting to get a little bit suspicious about this. If his morals are subjective, then what's to uh, prevent him from just lying about, so to speak, his wife is, is uh, calling when maybe not. He's, got, he's had the time at his demand to be able to lay his case out. When it's time to cross-examine it, now it's time to leave. So that's a problem. And since he's admitted that his morals are subjective to himself, well, then we don't know if he has any complete standard of morality by which we can trust that he's being honest with us. So his position undermines his own credibility with us. And that's one of the points I need to bring out, and it's a problem with them. Nevertheless, from the Christian perspective, if God is immutable and he is um, absolute and eternal, then that which emanates out of him in his moral sense, because that's referring to his character also, his immutability and eternality, then the morals will, will reflect that as well. There are certain questions that are necessary to ask in light of that. That would mean then that since God's nature is absolutely unchanging and the morals come from God's nature, therefore, doesn't it mean that the morals that come from God are also absolute and unchanging? And since he is the final arbiter and since he is the final judge, then the issue of morality is something that is objective to us. And we need to be concerned about the day of judgment when God will cast us into hell or heaven based upon, of course, the work of Christ and their trust in Christ. This is ultimately what it comes to. When it comes time to cross-examine him and put all this down the pedal to the metal, uh, got to go. We'll see how he does. Now, notice what he did, though, Matt. When you said, no, don't do this, he said, don't accuse me of lying. No, don't do this is an, is an accusation of lying? Or was that a guilty conscience? I don't know. You know, I, I don't know what was in his heart, but I just think he was inconsistent. Yeah. So I was extremely patient. He wanted to just say things without being interrupted. Okay. And I took notes. Morality is a set of prescriptions. A commandment is coming from someone, self or not self. He said, quote, morality is dictated and comes from God. He said, uh, it is not objective. It's based on God's subjective nature, but that's the problem area. Therefore, there's no objective morality that someone might use. That's another problem area because what could be objective to us is subjective to God's absolute nature. And so therefore, the absolute true moral reality that we must bow to is objective to us. And that's the ultimate issue. That's what it comes down to. But what he's going to say is we don't care about that. It just means it's subjective. I'll say, let's just say it does mean it's subjective to God. So now what? He's the king. He's the judge. You got to answer to him. And these morals that he gives, don't lie, don't steal, etc., are absolute. They are eternal by nature because he's eternal in my nature, because they reflect his character and his essence. So therefore, therefore, since they are eternal by nature and have preceded the universe, they're objective to us, obviously. Now, what's he going to do with this? And he's going to just go want to, what he'll probably do, I predict, is um, 
that he'll want to go back into semantic word games and I won't let him do it at that point. Well, I think we could solve this easily. I've added everybody that's in here. I've added them. I'm going to unmute people one at a time. I'm going to ask a question. He he had said last week that uh, that things are defined by the consensus. So, Matt, I'm going to start with you, and then I'm going to ask this question of everybody who's in here. It's a simple yes or no. I want everyone to answer. Matt, I'm going to – I'll go first, actually. The question is, is he wrong in his view? I say yes. Matt, what do you say? Which view? It, 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 when he okay, so I'll be more specific. When he says that that morals are only subjective, I say he's wrong. Do you say he's wrong? In the definition he gave, I can't say yes or no until I get more clarification. I'm trying to argue from what his definition is, which he was not as clear. So well, I, well, I can't say yes or no right now. Sorry, you know, you gotta be careful. We so then, uh, we're clear then for you. Is his definition wrong? Well, he said that if his definition is that any moral comes out of a person's own being and therefore it's subjective, then by that definition, everything is subjective because it comes out of the being of God. Do you believe his definition is wrong? Not it, okay. It's not an answer of right and wrong. It's an it's an because if that definition is what he wants, then it's correct. Okay. So I'll word it I'll word it differently from that. Is there an absolute objective universal morality that comes from the nature of God? Yes, that's absolutely true. Okay. I agree with that. John, let me unmute you, John. Is do you agree with that? Well, it depends on what you define God as. No. <laughs> yes, no. What standard have you got by which you can define what God is? He's doing this. Uh, it's just ridiculous. Yes know. or no? Do you agree? No, I, it, I agree. Yes, that is. Okay, hold, on. hold on. I'm going to mute you. Uh, I'm going to go to Joseph. Joseph, yes or no? Do you agree that with that? Well, he's absolutely wrong. I mean, it's okay. the creator okay. of the universe. Okay, hold on. Hold on. I'm going to go to, uh, I don't know what what your name is, but do you agree with that? Yes, I do agree. You agree with us. Okay. So, so real quick by the consensus here in this room, we're all unanimous that we're right. He's wrong. That there is an absolute universal standard that of morality that comes from God. So by his own definition, he has to submit to that. There's the consensus. <laughs> we all agree. <laughs> yeah. so yeah i mean that shows the that shows the problem he's got is it's in this room it's in whatever room anyone's in if you're going to go to the consensus it's like when people say well i got a study that shows this well you can always make a study that says whatever you want it to say as long as you fit it to make sure it fits what you want the conclusion to be well another little sub point of problem with him is as i was starting to focus on until he had to conveniently leave um, is that uh, he wants to criticize the Christian worldview. Well, then let's discuss it from the Christian worldview. He doesn't want to do that. He wants to take a secularized, philosophically based idea of a certain definition and then say that God therefore is subjective. We could work with that and say, okay, let's just say that God is subjective and his morals are subjective, subjective to himself. Okay. And he's eternal, and he's absolute. So therefore, those subjective morals are also eternal and absolute. 
which means you got to face him. So now what are you going to do with that? So it, even that definition does not negate the truth of Christianity, the truth of God's character, the necessity, the obligation to follow those moral laws, the consequence of that will occur uh, by breaking those laws. If he wants to try and dismiss that by saying it's all subjective and then therefore and the ultimate question is therefore not valid. Because if it's subjective and not valid, then he's saying that God himself, the Christian God, does not have the right to declare what is and is not moral out of his own eternal, immutable, universal existence. And then I would just say, well, what gives you the right to uh, lay your basis and your logic upon God? And as soon as he tries, then I've got him by the throat. Because then what he's doing is trying to use the transcendent nature of logic in order to argue against God. And he cannot, from his perspective, demonstrate that l the logic itself uh, is something that it must be subjective as well. Because if he's going to say that logic is subjective to individuals, then we cannot trust its universal truth value. We can't argue. So if he's going to start arguing that that logic has an objective value because he would have to, then how is he going to defend that position without saying that morality itself is also uh, not absolute? Because both of them can only be explained as competently uh, by presupposing the Christian God's existence. So he, you know, I was willing to work with the guy, but bring him down the road to the logical conclusion and then uh, ax him. But uh, he, he's, he had to go again. Conveniently. Um, we got someone new in here, so I don't know if he's got any questions, but I will. And I don't know how to pronounce his handle here. I guess it's uh, La Appa, Appa Gete. Or, La Paluzzi. Yeah. <laughs> so I've unmuted him. Um, so if you have any questions or challenges for Matt, go ahead. No, uh, I don't have anything. I'm just enjoying my moment listening to you guys, and it uh, has been a blessing. By the way, it's uh, apologet. It's in French. It means oh. apologist. You speak uh, are French? you from France? Uh -huh. No, uh, I'm from Quebec in Canada. Uh, fake French, my wife would say. No, moi je dirais pas que non. My wife speaks French, so her mom was born and raised in France. Anyway, whatever, but yeah. I, I, was, I was up in, uh, uh, I guess, Toronto, and uh, the, uh, one thing I noticed that was interesting with some French speaking, they would not speak French with him because his French wasn't good enough. And they, even though they both spoke French, this this guy would not speak to him in French because his he, he had an accent. And so they would talk through in Spanish through a translator. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> yeah. French people can be condescending uh, towards us Quebecers. So. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, this is a Quebecer, and, and yeah, he, he actually has it with his in-laws, too. <laughs> They'll speak to him in English rather than speak to him in French. All right, so where, you're from Quebec? Yes. You, you go to a church up there? Uh, yes, I'm going to a Baptist church there. Good. Oh, that's um, good. I'm right now completing a Bachelor of Theology uh, with the NBBI, New Brunswick Bible Institute, which is the, the province at the at the right of Quebec. And I I will be graduating in May. And uh, yeah, I mean, and after uh, I want to be 
perhaps a missionary or a pastor or so I'm just getting equipped and I use a lot of Matt Slick material. I lose I go off <laughs> into karm.org so <laughs> Good for you, man. Love to hear that. Well, do you you know that karm.org has trained more seminary professors and pastors than any seminary out there? <laughs> no, uh, yeah, that's, because it's it's accessible. It's accessible. Yeah. See, students of all the seminaries go to karm.org. <laughs> <laughs> I'm surprised a lot of them do actually. I was surprised. Yeah. yeah. And uh but there should be more uh, things in French because yes, uh, there should be. Perhaps in the so, future I'd like to translate some of your articles. <laughs> I was just going to say are you interested in doing some translation? <laughs> yeah, I would like to. I would like to. <laughs> what what's your first name? My first name is Manuel. 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 So you speak French and you got a, a Spanish name. Yeah, I think it's Hebrew. Uh, Hebrew. Uh, well, yeah, it's Hebrew. Yeah, come well, on. Andrew. Yeah. 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 Aren't you Jewish? Manuel is Spanish. Manuel would be. Yeah, it, it, it depends how you pronounce it. In Spanish, it would be Manuelito. Yeah, you speak Spanish? No, I'm I'm learning Spanish right now. I'm doing my fourth year, my bachelor in theology in Uruguay. So right now I'm speaking to you from uh, uh, near Montevideo. Well, si gustarías practicar conmigo, quiero hacerlo. Ah, sí. Necesito más practicar. Sí. Yo también. Pero inmersión, inmersión es la mejor opción. Inmersión cuando es mandatorio para mí de hablar en español es. Me gusta, me gusta. Oh, well, español es fácil comprender. Es más fácil de francés. Sí, con eh, mi okay. francés es un grande ayudo. Es un grande ayudo porque hay muchas similar palabras entre francés y español. Sí. Entonces, sí, me, gusta, this... me gusta. Right, okay. Okay. <laughs> speaking of tongues here. Come on. <laughs> no, I'm, not, I'm not Pentecostal. I'm not Pentecostal. <laughs> No, this is the real speaking in tongues. This is the actual yeah, speaking <laughs> But uh well good, good. And it's it's good that you're you're going to Carm getting stuff. And yeah, if you're if you're interested in, in doing some translation stuff, maybe we can uh get that on Carm. Sure, I would love to. I mean you you probably need some education or a bachelor in tra- translation, but <laughs> No, not really. It just has to be good. We have ways of checking things out. But quick uh Canada French is different than France, French. Yes, so, yes. Yeah. So has the to be French, French, right, has to be standardized. And so the French wouldn't, uh, they might reject it. To, you know, yeah. But they are a little. No, you're saying your wife, Neek, might reject it. <laughs> <laughs> she might be like, uh, this isn't real French. <laughs> All right. So. Well, so, so Manuel, you're welcome to come back in. If you have questions, just uh, pop on in. I'm going to, we'll go to Joseph and we got about, what, 20 minutes left. So I don't know if Joseph has any questions here. I'm going to unmute. Oh, boy. Uh, wow. It's an interesting show today. Um, and it's, uh, uh, I guess uh, I've been looking a lot um, in the scriptures. Um, in terms of trying to, I guess, uh, we've had a few discussions back and forth. And, uh, you know, and, and they've been good. 
But um, my my central thing is I you know I keep thinking to my, I kept thinking to myself about um, Act Seventeen, and um, I guess basically like when they begin talking to the Athenians, um, and basic the, the Athenians of course as we already know they just love disputation, and you know disputation for the sake of disputation is not a good thing. I think we all agree on that. Um. I guess what I'm I guess what I'm getting at and I, perhaps actually this was providential because uh we tend to have long discussions back and forth and those discussions unfortunately can be uh less than productive and so realizing I have a time limit of I would assume less than 18 minutes um that leads me to ask a few direct questions um so that might be helpful because again my goal remains the same, but eventually I can't, you know, go on forever. I don't know if that makes sense. So, mm-hmm. uh, so one of the things you had mentioned earlier, and I know that uh, you guys have a bit of a disagreement on this, but it's not a real. I don't think it's a real disagreement. I think you guys agree in principle on these, on the concepts of covenants and the things reflected in the old covenant being in the new covenant. Correct. Basically, yeah. Okay, and now where does the Levitical priesthood fit in that? Uh, to the left-ish of the middle dividing area. That would be me. I would be the Levite here. (laughs) Okay, well, I didn't mean of the actual tribe of Levi. I was referring to, um, I'm referring to, in other words, the sacrificial priesthood. Because, of course, we can look at, you know, the priesthood of all believers, and that, of course, is a reflection of Exodus 19.6. But what I'm saying is that there was still a Levitical priesthood, a practice and sacrificial priesthood. And so where does that fit in this system, for lack of a better term, of this new covenant? I'm not sure I understand your question. Well, are there sac- do you have sacrificing priests in your church? No. Okay. So what would be the parallel in the new covenant to the old covenant sacrificing priesthood? Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. Okay, so you're saying in the New Covenant post-sacrifice there is no priesthood? No. No Levitical priesthood? I didn't say that. Okay. Wait a minute. Wait, 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 wait. You just you just said two different things. No priesthood, then you said no Levitical priesthood. I didn't well, I was, Yeah, I was being specific about the Levitical priesthood, and I wanted to find the parallel. The Levitical priesthood is done away with because it represented, was typologically prophetic of Christ. And so since he fulfilled it, there's no more Levitical priesthood or sacrificial system needed. Okay, now the the reason why that interests me is because this got back to remember that whole week the question of the the thorny question of the Eucharist we continue asking each other, going back and forth as to whether it's the body and blood of Christ, that's my opinion or not. So I went to Carm's website. Um mm-hmm. and I looked at the church fathers speaking about communion. And in some of those, in fact, they make references to the fact that the Eucharist is a sacrifice and there are priests sacrificing it. Yeah. So I'm just curious as to how that jives. <laughs> yeah, so you 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 go to where I quote where some of the priests said or some people said this and that. Well, it's it's on your what? Okay, if I'm trying to define the Eucharist and we're trying to cuz we have to have a standard. I'm trying to use what what web page? What web page? Because I'm, without knowing I don't know what context you're referencing me from. Not a problem. It's uh, early church fathers on the Eucharist communion supper. Okay. Um, let me get to it. No problem. (sighs) 
And the we reason don't have, uh, we don't have Charlie here tonight because he would have already posted that link for you. Mm-hmm. Oh, I can post it. Hold on. No, I got it. I got it. I'm looking. A Eucharist okay. communion. Yeah, early church fathers. Yeah, and uh, where some said that it's one thing and others said it's another. Uh, yeah, that's what I, that's about. Well, uh, I would. I actually went and looked at each one of these quotes. I actually have each of them up. And the reason I have them up is because I don't see an inconsistency in any of the Father's teachings here. Um, more importantly, and this is where... Whoa, 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 whoa. You're just being subjective. I don't see any inconsistency, okay? So you're just saying you don't see them. It doesn't mean there isn't an inconsistency. Okay, well... I'm Okay, I'm not. I'm not that John guy. I'm not going to argue the question of whether there's a possible inconsistency or not. We're just going to assume that there is either there's not an inconsistency or there is. These church fathers well, are up on the website for a reason, aren't they? Yeah, to show their inconsistency. Augustine says the elements are a resemblance of the actual body and blood. Arthenagoras says it's unlawful to partake of the flesh of men. Uh, Augustine. Uh, said there that Christ said not to eat the body of the blood which you see. Uh, Clement of Alexandria says communion wine is called wine. Uh, he said that the bread and wine are symbols. Uh, Eusebius uh, is only the bread and wine. Uh, origin. I don't really trust Origin too much. Well, I, don't, I, don't, I, don't, I left Origin alone. Yeah, he's going. You know, Tertullian just, is the one who said I believe it's because it's absurd. So, but uh, and Tertullian so says it represents Christ's body. And the communion supper is, is spiritual words, uh, he said. Theodoret, uh, they well, remain as bread and wine. I mean, okay, what do you say the Eucharist is? You say it actually is the actual body and blood of Christ? Well, this is where we got into that debate earlier about DNA, so on and so forth. I mean, yeah. if you're going to argue that, you know, the bread and wine has to have, I mean, the body and blood have to have DNA, then on the, under that description, I would say, no, that's incorrect. Um, and I don't think that that's what these fathers are saying. Certainly not. Um, to take Theodora, for example, that's the only one I actually didn't even have to get a reference for, because quite frankly, if you read it, this is literally how we describe the Eucharist in our church. But um, in terms of St. Augustine, uh, I thought it was particularly interesting because a paragraph later, he begins talking about the mystery of faith, the sacrament of faith, and he's referring to baptism. But he goes further and he goes into infant baptism. And the reason why that's interesting is because he then explains that the sacrament itself physically protects the child until they are of age to believe on their own, meaning it has an external power. It is not simply it's, it's yeah. not simply a uh, simple sign. So that's what Augustine may or may not have said, how you interpret it, but well, I, so, I want it. Well, it doesn't matter. So what does the scripture say? It's not an issue what Augustine said or Tertullian I mean, but I this, want to know what the scripture says. But this goes right back to what we were saying, because when I said that the scriptures say that this is, you know, that he's talking about it being his real flesh and body, you said that's your opinion. So in order to make it falsifiable, we have to figure out, I'm using logic here, we have to figure out precisely whether or not that is a statement that can be historically interpreted. I would say it. No, 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 no. See, you know, historically interpreted, that that is open up to a wide variety of, of ambiguity. Because you might find one guy who, you know, see, he agrees. It's historically interpreted consistently with you. I could find somebody contrary. Now what do we do? You use the consensus doctrine. We've discussed this. It, oh, so now it's just argumentum ad populum. The majority says it, so therefore it's true. That is not something I will ever accept. What I want to accept is the word of God. It alone is inspired as the final authority. For people, for people to go outside the word of God to make their doctrines, 
uh, reminds me of going to the Book of Mormon, the Doctrine and Covenants, the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society, the Book of the Arantia, the Quran, the Hadith. Okay, but now here's now that brings me to another point. Let's go back to the scriptures themselves. As we know, the apostles talk about how we should not accept interpretations that are private, those that are outside the church. And more not true. That's not true. There's no prophecy of scripture made by private interpretation. You said no interpretation. Period. That's not what is it. What does the text say? That no prophecy of scripture is to be made by private interpretation. Okay, so what's the topic of no private interpretation? No prophecy of scripture. No teaching of scripture. It doesn't say teaching. What it says prophecy. What does a prophet do? Okay, it says prophecy. It doesn't say teaching. Prophecy. There's a word for teaching. Prophecy of scripture. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I was going to see what it says. When you make a prophecy, that's not of your private interpretation. The church has got to judge it. Okay, not a well, problem. Very good. Okay, no, we agree 100%. So if we go further and we take Second Thessalonians, the traditions you have received by word or epistle, you would agree that those can be found in the scriptures. Correct? What are the, those you're referring to? The traditions that the apostles handed down. I wouldn't say that every tradition that they spoke or everything that they spoke by word of mouth is uh, inscripturated. No, I wouldn't say that either. We have the Didache. We discussed that also. Um, that's where we you know, get into uh, fasting rules. The reason I bring this up is because that got me looking at Acts 15. And I'm going to look just quote 23. And it says, and they wrote them letters by them after this manner. The apostles and elders and brethren said, greeting to the brethren which were of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria. And you know the rest. I don't have to quote it to you. The point I'm trying to make is that through this epistolary form, the apostles continue to teach the church. And they established a succession. We've discussed this. And so the point is, you say, Show me their succession of authority in Scripture. Okay, well, if we go to the Acts of the Apostles, once again, and we go to, hold on one second, please. See, this is what that time limit is killing me on. I can't All right. All electronic right. scriptures. I'm using a book again. Well, that's why you got to come in early. I was here at a. Andrew, you have a question. Let him, let him look. And, angry, yeah. bald, angry bald guy took a lot of space. And, oh. <laughs> angry bald guy. I'm not that His name is John. Okay. So. Angry bald guy. Well, the, the atheist guy about, about subjectivity, him. Angry atheist guy, and that with that whole argument was garbage. Um, yeah, okay. And ridiculous. so we see Acts fourteen twenty three, and when they had ordained them elders in every church and prayed with pastor, they commended them to unto the Lord on whom they believed. Yeah, so, so, it, so, so they ordained them. Where does it say there's successive traditional? Because that's what you're getting. At. Their tradition and all their authorities passed down. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just says ordination is simply a recognition of their position and calling of God. It doesn't mean that they have authority to be able to transmit tradition. That's not what the text says. Well, I wasn't saying that they have the authority to transmit tradition. I was simply saying they have the authority of the church. They, uh, I have the authority of the church. Okay, well, which apostle ordained you? Uh, I don't know which one I did. I, I'm ordained, but I know this. Jesus came to me directly and called me. Now what are you going to do? And he did. 
Well, I he just, uh, came directly to me at my conversion. Uh, his presence, he was there. He forgave me. Okay. So. Now, I, earlier, well, yeah, no, and we were, you talked about this earlier with doctrine and practice. This was something that was, you talked about with the well, what, What's the point you want to get to? Because you're kind of just going all over the place. Why don't we just get down to it? What, what's the point? The point I'm trying to get to is I understand the goodness of your intent. I understand your belief. And I, I think you guys are really good guys. But the problem is, again, when we start talking about things like covenants, and we start talking about things like baptism, and we start talking about things like Eucharist, and I think you guys get what I'm saying, but at the same time are just like, well, in theory, it's not none of it's necessary, even though kind of in practice you'd see it is necessary. I, I don't know. I can't explain what? it. Constrained by time, my friend. You're so generic that I can't understand what you're saying. Take for example, okay, let's use baptism as an example. You would believe that after someone believes they should be baptized. Is that correct? Yeah. But you wouldn't say, for example, that the person needs baptism after their belief, would you? I'd say, yes, they do need baptism in order to fulfill the commandment of Christ. Oh, okay, good. So the point I'm trying to make is like, Take, for example, this to the, the reason this is important. I bring this up is because we would agree on that, but then at the same time, I would point out that that's the tradition of the church, and that would be considered what, a tradition of men. It's what Jesus said. I don't need to do the tradition of anybody. I just read what Jesus said. Get baptized. Okay, baptize. Okay, well, who baptizes? The people baptize. You can go to Acts 10, 44 to 48. Acts 10, 44 to 48, correct? The Gentiles were baptized after receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit. And Peter said they've already received the gift of the Holy Spirit just as we have. So they got water and they baptized them. So baptized? Peter and the apostles, I guess, Peter. Yeah. So Peter and the apostles. I guess, yeah. I would assume that their designated successors were baptizing people afterwards, correct? Yeah, you don't have to be an apostle or an ordained minister in order to baptize somebody. Nothing in Scripture says that. Well, yeah, but I'm talking about the regular form. Norm normally, people would... Do well, wait a minute. If it's an issue of authority, can uh, Bob, some guy who's a mechanic, and he's been a Christian his whole life, or just whatever, you know, most of his life, he's, he's a good, dedicated person, and his good friend Frank becomes a Christian, and they just love each other, you know, they're good friends, and um, Bob baptizes him. Is that okay? He's not in the Anglican church. He's not a Calvinist. He's uh, whatever. He just he gets... Could he be orthodox? He's not orthodox. He's not a. He's not everything. He's just a Christian. Believes in the Trinity, the deity of Christ, justification by faith alone in Christ alone. And he goes, "Let's go." You know, guy goes baptize you. Okay, is his baptism valid? Well, what about a Jehovah's Witness? Okay, is his baptism valid? I would say, from a purely logical standpoint, if he did three immersions and a baptism in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, if he was baptized by a Christian, he was baptized valid then you don't need authority transmitted down in order to do something. In order to do baptism? Yeah, or baptism. Or, or administer co communion. Is there any necessity of the uh, the communion being uh, given by uh, a duly ordained individual? Anything in Scripture that says that? Well, I would assume that they were, since they were the only ones who actually did the Eucharist, I, that's just a safe assumption to make. No, it's not a safe assumption, because it's just simply an assumption. Well, you don't want to make a doctrine on it. You don't want to make a doctrine and practice on assumption. You want to go with what the Bible actually says. Nothing in the Bible says only uh, ordained ministers 
who have had their hands laid on by successors of the apostles can properly give communion. Okay, then why are there qualifications for elders and deacons in the scripture? <laughs> First of all, I'm just saying I'll, it, it I'll answer it for chaos, but okay. I'll answer it. I'll answer it. First of all, nothing in the scripture says that communion or baptism can only or must only be administered by official clergy. I just admit your, no, okay. And your question is then if you admit that, then you shouldn't go to Titus chapter one and first Timothy chapter three to say, well, what about the elders who had to have qualifications the, in order to be an did the baptizing. In order to be an elder, there were certain qualifications they had to meet. Husband of one wife, uh, orderly, not given to much wine, you know, just basic things like yeah, that. No, I, I get that. that position. Okay, but none of those says they have to be the ones who baptize or give communion. None of them says that. Well, I'm sure you remember the whole thing with apostles disputing with each other, people, factions forming in the church, and where St. Paul says, you know, I'm of Apollo, some of Cephas. Right, and I'm, glad I baptized, I'm glad I baptized none of you except for the house of mm -hmm. The point I'm trying to make here is that one thing that the parties forming were all forming around elders. They were all forming around presbyters, which means... So? You can therefore deduce easily that not everyone was just baptizing people randomly, that it was they were brought to the church and they were baptized by the elders of the church. I didn't say they're baptizing randomly. I said that there's nothing in Scripture that necessitates that baptism or communion must be administered by duly ordained clergy. That's my point. Right, but my argument is, and I would say that that's something that has been historically played around with in the church for ages. I mean, with the fourth century, deacons weren't allowed to confect chrism anymore. The point I'm trying to make. I, so what? I'm taking with what the scripture says, not what some aberrant historical uh, point might be. Yeah, but that, okay, so then how do you determine what the correct understanding of the scripture is? I mean, if you say the Holy Spirit, it's kind of a fallback because then, you know, technically Joseph Smith and all the, all the other wackos are right, too. The point I'm trying to make is there has to be some sort of standard. I believe you used that word earlier. What's the standard? The standard would be that which was handed down by the apostles. <laughs> and what standard, what standard is it that you use to judge that that is the right way to do it? By following those who were taught by them and the succession. Okay. So not, you have not mentioned the word of God. So your standard is not the word of God. Your standard is church history. Well, their standard is the word of God, but the point is they had an no. Of the Yours. Word. I said your standard is not the word of God. This is why how, you're you're aberrant. Hold on. My how do you say that my standard is not the word of God when I'm because, sticking to a specific interpretation of the word of God you disagree with? No, because what you did when I asked you what's the standard, you said or tradition. Well, the, well the, the scripture to an Orthodox Christian is the word of God. It's like, uh, I hate using a modern... Well, then why didn't you say that? I asked you a question. The Bible says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. I asked you a question. What's the standard? You didn't say scripture. Yeah, I after I, the reason after I, I pointed out to you, then you go back to the scriptures. The so what's in your heart is your tradition, no, not your scriptures. I, can I can I finish? My, what's in my heart, I hope, is my Lord. But the point is... <laughs> Wrap it up with this one. All right. Okay. My, the point I was trying to make, and I don't want this to become an endless disputation, is that the church sees the scriptures as... Uh, how do I put they, they see the scriptures as her own. As her own. It, 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 there's no other way to, for us to see it. So the question, when you asked me, I took it as, 
um, how do you interpret scripture? I was not looking at it like the, I was looking at it the standard as the standard for scripture, not, you know, a standard by itself. Um, you know, that would be tantamount to denying the word of God or Martianism. And we don't do that. But, um, the point I'm trying to make, how do we keep this from becoming an endless disputation? Trust the word of God, not your tradition. Okay. Well, Amen. that's all right. Well, I think we'll just, uh, yeah, well, let's wrap it. Let's wrap it up there. Uh, Matt, I dropped the link in the, yeah, I'll go right over there. I'll just jump right over there now. No you problem. guys want to continue the conversation? Let's go over there. All I right. Know, actually, but it's, it's, it's been good. I'm going. I'll be over there. On. See you guys later. Okay. The after show is put on by the guys over at the council. I'll put the link into the uh, YouTube as well for folks who might want to join the after show. Uh, this is put on by Striving for Attorney. That's who hosts this show. We hope that you uh, enjoy this. Um, we have a couple other things that we can let you know about. We got several podcasts of which this is one of them. This becomes a podcast. Usually, usually tomorrow it drops, um, usually the next day. And so you can listen to this at Apologetics Live and get that as a podcast. You can also listen to my podcast, The Rap Report. I have two of them, a Monday through Friday daily uh, two-minute podcast, if you like short ones, giving biblical interpretations, applications to all things Bible, Christian, and secular or culture. We also have a lengthier one, uh, an hour-long one, weekly one, called The Rap Report, Andrew Rapport's Rap Report. You can subscribe to that. Um, let see. We had a talk with Virgil Walker dealing with abortion, racism, culture, a whole bunch of different topics. Next week we'll have Todd Friel will be talking about discernment and how to do discernment. Great, great conversation that we had. Uh, we got one coming up with Amy Spearman on the new apostolic reformation that's been recorded and being edited now. And uh, then we have one coming up on the topic of what is salvation with Alan Nielsen. So those are some, uh, some ones that uh, we got coming up on the rap report. And these are all part of the Christian podcast community. So if you want to check out some good Christian podcasts, you can go to christianpodcastcommunity.org. And we got someone who doesn't mute himself, so we will mute him. Uh, He unmutes himself to say sorry. If you're a podcaster and are interested in the Christian podcast community, becoming part of it, you can go to christianpodcastcommunity.com. That's the page for the podcasters. There is a link there if you're interested in podcasting, and we'll check that out and then send you an application and see if uh, if we would be able to have you join our community. So the community is about promoting one another and promoting others more than ourselves. Crazy idea. We think Christians should do that. And so with that, before we go out, let's give a quick plug for a commercial. Did you know that Striving Fraternity provides speakers and seminars that we would come to your church and disciple your people? We have seminars on the Bible interpretation made easy. Creation science, evangelism, presuppositional apologetics, even on sexual abuse. These are just some of the many things that we could provide for your church. Consider inviting one of our speakers to your church. You can contact us at speaker 
at strivingforeternity.org. Thank you.